This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 229 brought to you in association with SMART and the enlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Michael Fanfant, General Partner at international VC firm Runa Capital, who has been an expert in fintech since the inception of the industry, to discuss the fascinating and as yet uncovered topic on the podcast of the overview of fintech in the US, past, present and future. So, I suspect you've all heard of the US, and I certainly think you've all heard of fintech. So here are both together. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Michael. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. And as we were just saying, it's morning where you are, which is the... uh, You're one of the few people left in um, San Francisco that hasn't managed to book a U-Haul truck (laughs) somewhere somewhere southeastwards. And uh, you've been travelling a little bit around the world. And so it's morning for you. And, and for me, it's a rainy afternoon in London. And uh, as I said to you, I don't know how well I succeeded. The listeners can, uh, can judge. I will have to, uh, this late in the day over here, stimulate uh, professionalism and interest in the introduction. So uh, listeners, you can see how well I faked that. Oh, sorry, I, uh, how well it, uh, my natural enthusiasm at any hour of the day came out. But anyway, so tell us about your, your travels before we go on to what used to be the sort of, you know, the nirvana of the world in the 50s and 60s at California. Yeah, I was. Uh, I just got back from three weeks in in Asia. I visited Jakarta, Tokyo, Seoul, Hong Kong, and Singapore. So, quite a trip around. It was really awesome, and really got to explore, you know, the local markets, meet investors, meet startups, and try to understand what is happening in fintech in all of these countries. So, you know, excited to be back home. Uh, but it, it was a pretty wonderful trip. Oh, excellent. Well, you do make my sort of juices uh, juices flow with that one because I was <laughs> listening to you. I think, well, maybe I shall just go back and edit the introduction and make it fintech in Asia because that sounds more interesting than the sort of uh, our little problem child of those colonies that we, we founded a few centuries ago in, in America, which are uh, not entirely making Europe a better place at the moment, but let's put the politics to one side. So you've covered a a number of countries there which are quite culturally different. You've got sort of East Asian ones and you've got Chinesey ones and you've got, I don't think Korea would like to be described as Chinese or Japanese, definitely neither, um, but it's certainly uh, East Asian. But also you've got um, uh, Jakarta, which uh, I went to back in the day, decades ago, um, which is certainly, Indonesia certainly its own place. I mean, just without trying to do anything systematic or anything, what was your sort of feel from actually having, you know, been boots on the ground, shaking, shaking hands with people and, and talking to people? Just sort of briefly about fintech, not to cover the various things, but what things leapt out to you when your mum says, oh, I'm glad you're back, Michael, you had a nice trip, or American version of that. Uh, I can't do American mums, ageing mums, although you're a young youngster. So, uh, yeah, what uh, what kind of are the sort of uh, the parent level highlights when they say, oh, we're fascinated in fintech too, maybe your parents are for all I know. <laughs> what leapt out to you about your, yeah. your trip? We'll dive into to some of the, the history of what's happened, right, in, in the US and uh, you know, similarly in, in Europe. But, uh, you know, first off, I started in Jakarta on my trip, and that was a really interesting place to to start a, a trip to Asia. Uh, you know, 
massive population, extremely fast developing country, uh, and lots of innovation in fintech happening. Um, and we'll we'll discuss kind of the history of fintech innovation in the U.S. and you know largely the same in in Europe, but going into Jakarta and, and landing there and seeing all of these, meeting with all of these fintech companies, it kind of felt like we were going back to fintech 1.0. You know, they're at the beginning stages of, of digital transformation in a country that doesn't have legacy infrastructure, which creates a ton of opportunity, also a lot of challenges for these, these companies. So that was a wonderful like country to visit, got to see a lot and you can learn about, you know, companies trying to increase insurance adoption, uh, changing the way, you know, insurance brokers work, lots of digital banking, uh, starting to see SMB lending, some P2P lending businesses. So a lot of the same kind of themes that we're touching upon in the Europe or in Europe or the US, though these, these companies are having to figure out how to underwrite uh, without credit history how to identify consumers when there's not just one kind of tax identification number. Uh, how do you eliminate fraud when there's no credit reporting nationally? So very, like, very big problems, lots of things to solve, but you're going to create companies that have built all of this internally. And then, you know, hopefully some B2B businesses show up in the next generation of providing these services to other fintechs. So that was a you know great place to start a tour of Asia. And so yeah, Jakarta's at one end of the spectrum. At at the other end, right, is a country like Japan, where they have a very well developed financial services market built on legacy infrastructure like the US. And there's fintech innovation, though the country itself is not one that changes extremely quickly their consumers are you know the most loyal in the world and once you have them on your your platform or they're using your product you're able to build an extremely large business though one that maybe hasn't changed for fintech as rapidly over the past decade as some other countries uh, though that looks to be speeding up with kind of a new generation of of entrepreneurs, but I, those are kind of two ends of the spectrum on on my trip to Asia. It, it sounds fascinating, actually. I mean, it, um, it reminds me somewhat of my travels around the, the region, including Jakarta. Where I've told the story before that uh, on my first trip to Jakarta, exploratory trip, I was there with a, a local in our office or something. I think it was a banker, but never mind. Having breakfast on a Saturday morning outside of the Mandarin Oriental or whatever it was, a very tall building. Um, and he said, "See that table sitting next to you?" And I said, "Yeah." I said, "What, what about it?" He said, "Oh." Last week, someone fell onto it from the roof. So, what do you mean? It fell onto the roof? It was, oh, you've pushed off. It doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take much to rub people out over here. So, <laughs> he said, by way of context, and you know, he had five staff and had someone to uh, avoid having his, you know, electricity generator nicked and, and all that kind of thing. So, there is the kind of official, what used to be called sort of suit and tie stuff about what's going on. And then there's also the kind of like, by the way, <laughs> don't try this in this country, local customers. But it sounds very fascinating, and it was very similar. But there was a parallel in terms of investment management in the in the area in those days where the Japanese certainly knew a little bit about it domestically but knew absolutely nothing um, internationally and they were busy buying up California back in the day and film studios and, and all that kind of stuff down to the you know the likes of Jakarta that um, 
hadn't really sort of come across it. So it's always interesting going to these places uh, at an early stage in the development. And the great thing about Asia is you have so many countries, so many cultures, you know, even more than in America, um, that you go to these different places and they're, they're all quite stimulating. It almost sounds like you've got an interesting job there, Michael. But talking of your interesting job, maybe you'd like to give uh, the audience just a sort of thumbnail sketch of, of how you ended up with this sort of sinecure, flying around first class or private jets or whatever VCs do around the world across the Pacific. Uh, it must be probably quite expensive, a private jet across the Pacific. And sort of hanging out in all these places and dispensing your millions to the, uh, to the locals and making billions, which sounds quite fun. But how did you get there? If anybody listening wants to be wants to be like you in sort of ten years time when they grow up, how do they do it? Yeah, still uh, still waiting for that private jet around <laughs> Asia. A few more unicorns, yeah. you'll you'll have it. Don't worry, don't worry. Exactly, economy flights are are less fun. But uh, for me, I've been a VC with Runa and investor for almost six years now, mostly focused on on the U.S. Though you know we do a lot of of Europe as well. It's been an awesome journey. I think you learn a lot about how to build a company uh, sitting on this side of the table, which is you know, very interesting for me because before coming to Runa, I was an entrepreneur myself. I started a fintech company that's based in New York. It's called Octane Lending. I was one of our, our co-founders and did a lot of our early go-to-market. So Octane is a lender in the power sports space. We partner with motorcycle manufacturers and lend money to consumers on their behalf through the dealership network. So was a fintech entrepreneur. That was kind of the the start to my entrepreneurial journey and, and understanding a little bit more about VC. And, and before that worked at Capital One in, in corporate strategy as well. So I spent my whole career in financial services in some way, shape or form. Oh, excellent. And you're clearly a fast learner because having been a founder, you must have been sitting at your board tables you know, working day and night really hard and there's sort of some some up-and-coming, you know, mid-ranking VC on the other side of the table and and all they do is give you a good kicking and say, oh, you missed your KPIs by 1% last month and blah, blah, blah. And you thought, well, blimey, you know, now I've founded this one, why don't I just take the easy route forward and just go and sort of turn up and uh, add value to, to founders? Your mileage may... Uh, you may differ, but actually we have had, um, we have, in fact, you don't quite hold the record because there was a guest on before who'd been private equity and then VC and then a founder. So actually he'd gone the, he'd gone the opposite um, journey. Anyway, teasing you apart, but it is always interesting seeing things, I mean, literally from different positions around the table, whether it's the chairman, whether it's the founder, whether it's the VC, whether it's an angel, uh, all that kind of stuff, because it does help one build up not just the sort of logical, you know, school exam stuff or MBA stuff, you know, chapter so-and-so on capital raising, chapter so-and-so on realisation, yeah, right, okay, that's all fine. But also it just builds up the kind of the human being angle, like what does it feel like to be a founder? What do you actually worry about? What do you wake up at at four o'clock in the morning rather than the spreadsheety stuff? And, and, and equally for the VC, you sit there as a founder thinking, God, that VC's job, that's really easy, I could do that, and you go and do it and think, yeah, actually, it's, <laughs> there are some bits I didn't realise, actually, which are, which are less appealing to it. Anyway, talking about America, um, I shall not tease you anymore about uh, Californication and other Red Hot Chili Pepper uh, albums, um, which were quite uh, seminal uh, and forward-looking um, in the circumstances. But going back to the history of fintech in the US, fintech is a very silly word. Some people use it simply still, even to this day, to mean technology and banks. And they say, oh, yes, we've had fintech since the 1960s. Yeah, well, OK. We've had computers in banks. Yeah, right. Okay. And there's been a whole history of that. 
but um, maybe just let us know from a US domestic perspective, when, as it were, you personally became aware of the word fintech and, and what it meant at the time. You know, you've got this strange phenomenon, I think, around the world now, where, in my terms, you've got new providers of financial services to individuals or to companies, B2C and B2B, just financial services providers, and then you've got a completely different type of company. And, of course, this is just a simple black and white picture. That there's nuances in the middle. But you've got another kind of company, which is just a rebranded IT company, because when 25 years ago you say, oh, we sell IT to banks, you'd never get a girlfriend or boyfriend, and well, they mainly there were sort of nerdy, nerdy blokes doing sort of COBOL programming and that kind of stuff. Whereas what with the dot-com and all that, they rebranded themselves as tech, and uh, suddenly that's cool, and they get girlfriends. And then the two get lumped together in fintech. But anyway, that's just a you know, super high-level thumb, thumbnail from a London perspective. But just tell us about the word and when you became aware of it to, in the States, and you know, the, sort of the early days, and then some of the main roots of how it's developed over there. Yeah, I think you you made a, a great point on, you know, computers and in, in banks really being some of the, the game changing innovations from, from the nineteen sixties. The word fintech for me, I I'm not sure I had heard it much before two thousand eight, but the, you know, financial crisis there really it really changed the way the world thought about banking. There was, you know, lack of trust in the financial ecosystem in the US definitely but across the globe and these you know historic traditional institutions all of a sudden didn't seem so safe to people uh, they seemed maybe old not tech enough and lacked that kind of digital savviness and and people and companies and founders were more willing to take a look at some of these old types of institutions, products, services, and and try to find a better way to do it. For me, you know, I do think that the origin of fintech is actually, you know, back in the 1800s and 1900s. <laughs> Double entry <know>. bookkeeping. <laughs> it, it's the laying of kind of like the first transatlantic cable that allowed, you know, Morse code communication between Europe, UK, US, the ability to actually telegram or wire money with Western Union. Some of these first innovations that were extremely technically advanced for the time, we look back and, you know, don't use many of them anymore. Or, you know, the first credit card with with Diners Club in the 1950s. Some of these early innovations that were incredibly uh, transformative and kind of laid the groundwork for what we see as fintech today, right? That's kind of the pre-1950s and the 1960s. You mentioned it, computers, right? The ATM, you know, NASDAQ was founded in the 70s, digital stock exchange, right? And and in the 1990s, we started to see, you know, digital banking with the rise of the personal computer and the internet, the ability to send money or log into your bank account online, PayPal, and payments in the kind of late 1990s, early 2000s. And that's a lot of what technology was. It was technology for banking. Uh, There weren't kind of, you know, maybe Capital One as from my experience, right? It's one of the youngest large banks in the US started in 1994 as a a credit card company with their innovation being they could offer risk-based pricing to consumers not give everybody the same rate for a credit card, which, you know, sounds like a duh moment today to us, but back then was not common. So 
I think those are some of the innovations that laid the groundwork for what we've seen more more recently. And from you know great recession, financial crisis to today, we've just seen the number of companies founded, the number of solutions being solved or attempting to be solved drastically increased. So you know, starting off with some of these themes, some of the topics that that you and I previously talked about, P2B payments, Venmo for personal wallets in the US, right? Plaid started in, in 2013 to allow this connection between different banks so that, uh, you know, third parties could understand if you have money in your account, how much money actually try to start making a payment on your behalf potentially. So those are some of the innovations that we all know now, we've all seen, but in the US were drastic departures from the legacy, you know, checks, cash system. And I think they paved the way for this this fintech innovation for sure. Yeah, I'm just pressing pause at um, that point. My half-wit aside, maybe it is worth just touching on one of the two bizarre characteristics of the states from a financial perspective, of which writing of checks carried on much longer than it did even in backwards places like um, uh, London. So that's one kind of eccentricity. Um, Another perhaps is the whole equity crowdfunding thing, which never really took off off there in the same way as it uh, did in London, or at least had lots of hiccups. And then um, I'm thinking when uh, Jay Bregman from Thimble was on a podcast from, from New York, he was saying that he thought at the time, I think it was a couple of years ago, uh, that New York was going in the right direction. I, I hope he's right. I, not from what I see on, on Twitter itself, but anyway, that, those are different things. But he was emphasising the fact that from an insurtech perspective, the US ain't one country, or it might be one country, but actually more relevantly to them, it's 52 states. <laughs> and you go to your 47th state and they say, hello, who are you? And you say, oh, we're a US insurtech. You go, yeah, right. But have you ever been to our state? No. Okay. Start at the beginning, go to the beginning of the queue, fill in all the forms and... And, and so you've got these kind of odd, odd things, which it, in some ways are even worse than places that uh, you Americans look down on, like Europe as being, oh, it's just backwards over there and all this kind of thing. So America's always had this bizarre, I'm just thinking of a random example. You've got the Amish on one hand, and then you've got sort of the porn industry in California in the same country. And it's almost the same thing with financial services. So you, you had PayPal, but you also, most people were still just writing checks. So what is it about this curious sort of paradox about the states from the sort of fintech EFS perspective? Yeah, I want to start this. I mean, is it, for example, one thing that's sort of slightly in my mind, and it's very re- relevant at the moment with the federal state getting ever, ever more power to the centre, and while you're away, the example of Texas and some others passing bills to potentially make gold-backed currencies legal tender in, the, in their areas, that there's a certain degree of which to which the, the kind of civil war that you guys had just purely from a government's perspective, not from all the other perspectives, purely from the government's perspective, the confederation versus the federation thing was never entirely solved. To a certain degree, it's federal, but to a certain degree, it, it's per state. It's, it's confederal, like, you know, Switzerland is pretty confederal. Confederation Evertique, the CH thing on, on, the, on the license plates um, uh, over there. And maybe just coming at that as a potential model, Taking InsureTech as an example, for some reason, when they sort of finished the Civil War, they, <laughs> they left insurance local. It wasn't very federal. Whereas other things, you know, just became sort of federal. And then what we've seen pretty much in the 20th century with world wars and that kind of stuff, the central government accumulates more power. Is there something about the U.S.'s constitution that's a bit, bit odd? I'm not poking the bear through the, the, the cage. I mean, US, UK, as it's been pointed out recently, 
is a strange country. It's not a country. It's it's a it's you know slightly united kingdom. You've got these different regions. With, I mean, Scotland, for example, has its own currency. I think the Queen's got a different name or a king now. When it goes north of the border, they've got their own legal system. You know, in the same way that Texas is quite a re- republic. So it's not like let's say France. I mean, France is by now France. You know, it's one place. Is that the thing? Does it somehow differ depending on whether you're talking about checks or PayPal or InsurTech? I mean, I do remember Peter Thiel, for example, just in the PayPal talk thing, saying, oh, yeah, on one stage we realised, oh, shit, we've got to go exponentially because otherwise they'll stop us doing what we want to do. But once we've grown so big, it's too late then. Yeah, I mean, you're you're hitting on some unique points of, about regulation in the United States, right? We have federal regulation and we have state regulation. Sometimes different versions of regulation on the same topic. Sometimes they act harmoniously. And as a fintech in the US, you have to understand both. From a consumer perspective, largely, you know, the market acts pretty homogeneously. You may get faster adoption in one area, slower adoption in another, but that's true of of all markets. I think you mentioned our governance structure. Some of what, you know, they got right at the founding of the constitution was interstate commerce and the ability to effectively have free trade between all of the states. And and I think in that way, a lot of the country acts very homogeneously, obviously from a regulatory landscape, if you're an insure tech or a lender, you want to offer financial services, you may need a federal license, you may need state licenses in each state and have to go about getting them. In a lot of instances, though, getting a state license is easier than getting a federal license. There's, you know, relatively clear processes, relatively clear rules, and it's not onerously expensive. There's relatively uniform processes for applying to become a lender in most states or getting an insure tech license that aren't extremely expensive or normally not, you know, too time consuming. Uh, so that I think is is good from a regulatory landscape for fintechs. You you mentioned incorrectly, right? Places like the EU, where you're able to get open banking uniformly passed, is great for consumers. It's great for fintechs. The U.S. at a national level is often uh, behind Europe from a regulatory landscape, and you know we end up with something like Plaid which also had to grow extremely quickly, like your, your PayPal reference. So, you know, it is a different system, but because of the large size of the market and the large size of the population and the fact that interstate commerce is, you know, allowed to be free and it's insisted upon it kind of being free historically, it mostly acts as one. If you find something that's successful in California, you're likely able to replicate it successfully in New York City or Chicago. Yes, I don't want to project anything onto Jay, and it was some time ago, but I think my takeaway that I remember was, look, all this is doable, all it means is it takes more time and more lawyers <laughs> fees, which is another unique feature um, uh, of the states. Um, so just before we go on to some of the verticals, because I suspect that you know what we're talking about here will impact, for example, the rate of adoption of InsureTech across the, the 52 states versus the rate of adoption of P2P versus like equity crowdfunding and payments uh, and, and these other mm-hmm. other things. You will see differential progress. It's not because founders in payments are better or anything like that. It's just, you know, it, it's the way it um, works. What are the, the, the geographic 
hubs of relevance. I mean, you know, you've obviously got the, the West Coast, San Francisco stuff. You've got quite a few banks in New York. I've heard of New York, um, Austin, Texas. I mean, if you had to say the sort of there are five places that you can go off and be a founder or be a dev in the states in fintech, what would the main five be? We're seeing it just more and more spread out. Any major city is is starting to produce, you know, payments businesses, B two B SaaS businesses with the payment angle. I think you know lots of the banks on Wall Street are still there. They're, you know, stock exchanges. Fewer than when you set off for Asia, but uh, that's another story. <laughs> we'll get on to the future. Yeah, lots of, you know, hedge fund movement of money, lending. New York is still and continues to be a hub for a lot of those institutions. So it's a great place to start a business. We started ours there. And on the flip side, a lot of the infrastructure B2B SaaS companies, Plaid, some of these other businesses have been founded in San Francisco where there is, you know, Lots of sales go to market talent for those types of companies. That being said, we're seeing companies all over. We've got some founders in in Austin, Texas, and you know we're continually seeing fintech businesses pop up all over the country. So we've seen it democratize a bit. Where historically it was probably yeah San Francisco, New York. You know, COVID may have changed that a bit for the U.S. Oh, excellent! I'm very pleased to hear that because. I've probably got some books in my bookshelf if I turn around from about 20 years ago on like the laptop lifestyle and the, 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 the hypothesis 20 years ago was, yeah, because the internet and laptops, you can just sit on the beach in Bali and it doesn't really matter. And because property is so expensive in these sort of places like New York and London, people won't do it there. But certainly just purely from a London perspective, it's got more and more insane. More and more people have squashed into London to try and do it in a smaller space. Salaries have gone up. Housing prices are completely out of control for a whole bunch of reasons. And off the top of my head, uh, sorry to anybody who lives in Bristol, I haven't heard of much fintech in Bristol or in Cornwall or, you know, so uh, it is good if we're getting this diversification. So moving on to some of the, the key verticals, one which I think going back to UK, US mutual teasing, I thought was an archetypal example was that the UK invented peer-to-peer and then the US uh, totally professionalised it and uh, Lending Club launched in the stock, stock exchange and was a billion times greater and uh, now, as I'm sure you know, Zopa, who invented peer-to-peer, 20 years later, have, uh, have given it up, a story we covered on the, the show um, last year. And over here, Zopa was very early, but as you know, about 2010, 2012, rate setter, funding circle, which listed and share price hasn't entirely gone up since, came along. And it was a great premise. It was a, you know, it was a great hope for the future that, oh, we'd cut out these banks after 2008 and all that kind of stuff. And it didn't work, really. And they sort of kind of all kind of slightly disappeared. Um, so what's the uh, what's the arc of the let's just say the p2p story uh, in the states because uh, i simply simply from the perspective that i think that one of the potentially interesting technical innovations 2008 onwards was well look hey you know a, a rich vc like you's got loads of money um, and poor podcasters like me who need to buy new microphones if you just lend it to me directly and we'll cut out Citigroup or jp morgan presumably we can do that sort of cheaper which missed out two things really one which is that Banks can create money out of thin air, which rather helps if you create the product. I and mean, let's say I'm a gold miner and I can create gold out of thin air. That will definitely help my profitability. Anyway, let's not get into the details, but things like that. So just let's start with the peer-to-peer arc. How, how did you see the peer-to-peer arc uh, in the States? And has it petered out and almost disappeared as it has over here? Yeah, the trend historically has been pretty similar to the UK. You know, Lending Club maybe grew bigger, faster. Ultimately, though... Most lending in the U.S. is still done by traditional banks, right? There isn't a peer-to-peer company that has revolutionized every form of lending. And I think the the boom in P 
peer to peer ultimately missed a, a couple a couple things. One is distribution is very expensive. They had high CACs and people wanted to make outsized returns kind of relative to the risk. So their cost of capital was high. Where, you know, the largest banks in the US, JP Morgan, whoever else, are sitting on trillions of dollars of assets and have built up teams that specialize in lending to you know, esoteric businesses like airplane financing or, you know, mass scale to consumers with credit cards. And that trend, it's just a fact about fintech. Cost of capital is, uh, it's a moat and it's a competitive advantage. So if you want to be really successful as a lender, you want the lowest cost of capital and you want to be able to lend profitably, you know, kind of at the highest interest rate, most likely. That's that's how you maximize profitability. And a lot of the peer-to-peer lenders weren't able to get low enough costs of capital, ultimately. And they still had high customer acquisition costs. It, they weren't able to find scalable enough distribution. So I don't think the model is totally broken, but if you can't solve those two problems, it's going to be hard to build a really big lending business. Yes, yes, quite. And added to all that, as I say, the... Uh... They take one pound in and a bank creates nine pounds out of thin air, which gives them quite an advantage on the other side. And an example with Zopa was that they were never, the, never ever the cheapest place to borrow money. They just try to give better service. So moving on from the remarkably similar arcs appear to be, I mean, another problem, of course, is well, cross-selling. Like you go to Zopa, you get a car loan. Great. You paid your car loan off. That's it. You know, so the cost of customer acquisition had to be swallowed up by one transaction, which may have been one transaction for 10 years, as opposed to, I don't know, you go to a full service yeah. bank, they've got all sorts of stuff they can do for you. Um, okay, so that's peer-to-peer. Maybe just like leaping around and going to the, the, the other sort of great hope for the future is sort of this huge fintech FS innovation, one of which is peer-to-peer. The other which is this thing which I've never entirely believed in. I've always hoped it would have done better than it did. I've always been a big sceptic and sad to say I've generally been true on this one so far. I'd like not to have been. Is the whole crypto world and getting into politics and federal and the state and all this complicated thing, crypto is becoming quite an issue in itself, not least of which because of all CBDCs and all that. We haven't got time to sort of fall into that particular rabbit hole. But again, just as a sort of a a high level thing, how do you see the whole crypto arc in the States from when you, Michael, had never heard of the word crypto to actually one day I heard of it. I thought, what's that? What is Bitcoin? And then it became this and it was going to solve everything. And then it's kind of disappearing or I don't know, manipulated by the CIA or dark web or whatever you want to say. Yeah, it's been a fascinating journey to watch for for crypto. And, you know, we should maybe separate crypto and all Web3. To me, the challenge with crypto has primarily been it's hard to access. You know, it's the security around storage and it's the high fees to transact most of the gas fees on different exchanges are, are quite high. And so from a fintech perspective, whether you're you know, globally or in the US, we've actually built a reasonably efficient system to transfer money, make a payment. Uh, you know, if it's a check or an ACH, it's mostly free in the US. If you do a credit card, which can be you know, instant, there are some fees, but we're talking in the UK or Europe, you know, tens of basis points in the US, maybe up to 150 basis points. 
uh, a lot of the the transaction fees for crypto are you know multiple percent plus they you know do their forex uh buying and selling uh manipulation giving you a lower price when you sell yes oh dear okay so uh, in a similar way the the, the two great uh, innovations of, of fintech qua uh, fs uh, haven't really lived up to uh, at least the hype uh, and certainly some fairly sensible expectations in the first place so if we were to try and sort of pick out one or two areas in which you think fintech in the us has done really well in your perspective what what would they be what do you think the great successes are in terms of the verticals yeah i, I think well still have a lot of uh maybe hope for web3 or crypto that there will be continued innovation that bring down those fees right it, it could work at scale as people make it more efficient or make it easier to build on-ramp from fiat to crypto and off-ramps uh, I think there's a lot of potential innovation there that we're still in the early games for. That's what you know I've been waiting to find some of these more efficient processes for for the end consumer businesses. I think what we're seeing a lot of in the U.S. that has been really successful is fintech as a tool for services or vertical SaaS businesses. Uh, there's still a ton of markets and segments that are just incredibly inefficient done using paper it's poor matching of buyers and sellers and a lot of them are kind of verticalized SaaS businesses it could be in freight trucking moving of goods you know it, it's hard to track the good it's hard to get financing and there are you know businesses being created in all of these categories all of these verticals that offer some sort of technology solution but once they've attached payments or lending or both to it, they have a customer that's locked into their ecosystem using their technical product to, you know, decrease costs, save time, be more efficient. And you now are able to layer on some sort of financial services to that customer in your ecosystem. It's more defensible, uh, it's more efficient, and for your customers, they're better off than they would be. You may be able to be cheaper than a bank because you've locked in this customer at you know what is a relatively low CAC spread out over many different types of transactions, whether it's lending or payments. And so some of these use cases are the opposite of what we talked about happening in P2P or potentially in, in crypto in the past. And these businesses actually seem to, once they add on payments, these vertical SaaS companies, they seem to be growing faster or having higher net dollar retention, longer LTV by locking in their customers longer. And so this is, you know, a whole category of companies, not really relevant for one specific industry, but we're seeing them pop up and happen across all industries in the U.S. And most of the time, adding financial services to your product is additive to both you and your customer. So really excited about all these types of B2B SaaS plus fintech uh, companies that we're seeing. Interesting. And, and, and hearing you speak, maybe to a certain extent, some of the early innovations in fintech were, as it were, attacking the front door of the castle, like, oh, we can do lending cheaper than you with your battering ram. Funny enough, the castle's been there quite a while. Uh, the walls are quite thick and you're unlikely to get through and, and they didn't. Or crypto, oh yeah, forget your money. Well, we've got our own kind of thing. And then they find out that actually the original money was easier to transact, um, even if it's sort of disappearing in, 
uh, value as well. Whereas hearing you talk, you know, this vertical SAS B to B, all these kind of words, it sounds to me that actually, funnily enough, going back to a funny word, but actually the word fintech is very relevant here, which is that the banks do the fin, but they don't do the fin and the tech. They don't have vertical SaaS products for supply chain financing, I don't know, widgets crossing America or aluminum roofs or something like that. Whereas if you can get into that kind of trading finance, the, the, the real oil in the economy, then actually what you do, you find markets that the banks never touch uh, and aren't going to touch, or if they did it, they're pretty anti-diluvian, um, as we touched on many times in the show about you know global trade finance and, and all this kind of, kind, kind of things. Right, okay, so um, as I was... Uh, Mentioning as an aside before, since you went to Asia, maybe a little bit before, the odd uh, US bank has sort of done a 2008 and run into problems and been absorbed and all this kind of thing. And we've got sort of Chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, becoming a meme. The banking sector's in fine form two hours later, crash in the background. What was that? <laughs> so we, we've almost got a bit of a booking to 2008, or maybe it's becoming 2008 part two, in that um, in the US and the UK we kicked the can down the road, unlike in Iceland where they bankrupted the banks but not um, uh, the people um, with interest rates shooting up from their sort of uh, crazy low levels QE blah 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 all this kind of stuff so we're certainly running into a period of time where the background to fintech is that FS is considerably challenged that's before we talk about great research and CBDCs and maybe goals coming in so FS per se has gone out of the eye of a storm and everything started swirling around and I'm sure you and I can imagine three very different scenarios of what the world looked like in five years' time, you know, rosy scenario, pessimistic scenario, one in one in the middle. So that's the overall situation. So in terms of the future in, of fintech um, in, in the, uh, the US, I mean, apart from, as you say, you like these vertical sassy B2B businesses, which in, in my terms are finantech plays, which is the, gives the USP to, to fintech, I guess. How are you seeing the future? I mean, I would have thought that from a VC perspective or from any investment perspective, it's pretty challenging environment to be investing in the next few years. I mean, having been a global head of fund management business in the past myself, it's quite nice to be investing in the right types of uh, climate. To be like sailing when it's sunny and you've got the gins and tonics out there and the sun's going down, it's all peaceful. That's really nice sailing. But when there's a sort of 40 knot gales and you know your, your mast is breaking, that's less fun. So... Uh, <laughs> As usual, given the caricature of a spectrum there, but where do you think we are along that spectrum? There's clearly a lot of tensions, and it can't be that easy for you guys and for every other VC in, in the States in fintech investing right now because you don't know what the macro will be over the next few years, surely. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting time in the US and, and globally. I think historically, as a VC, the best times to invest are when other people are not investing. The best time to start a fintech business was right after the Great Recession. And we saw, you know, all of them from Plaid to, to Venmo to others. And, you know, we have to keep that as investors in the back of our mind, that we want to be investing in the best founders, kind of regardless of what's happening in the cycle. You're completely right that the uncertainty around what is happening at a macro level, I think, is is holding a lot of firms, people, LPs back. You don't want to invest a lot of money into a startup and, uh, and not be able to raise capital 18 months from now. So I think we, that's why we've seen the slowdown. That being said, there are still amazing companies out there. There are amazing companies that are solving big problems for their customers and growing really quickly, efficiently, right? So you know, it's no longer growth at all costs. If you're a startup founder, it's how do you grow as fast as possible, as efficiently as possible. And 
ideally as profitably as possible on a company basis. So those types of businesses that achieve that really fast growing, profitable, control their own destiny. And I, I think those are the types of businesses that are easiest to invest in for us. Uh, if you showed me one of those, we'd be happy to to write an investment check. But generally, I think it's going to take another six, 12 months, maybe it's 18 months. Nobody knows the exact timeline. But once we have a little bit more certainty about the macro level, uh, you'll start seeing investment pick up again. But there are still great businesses that are growing quickly, and we're still excited about those. So we've still been deploying and, you know, plan to continue deploying. Absolutely. And the analogy breaks down. I mean, I was a bond fund manager, and certainly in AAA, AA bonds, there's extremely high correlation between the performance of bond A and bond B, unless you're a bond fund manager, they do the bloody same. But if you're a bond fund manager, there's exciting differences, of course. And then you can go on to, let's say, you know, the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100, the biggest stocks in the world. If we know that in a year's time, both of those will have fallen 50%. Well, okay, there will be sectors and there will be stocks which can outperform the minus 50%, but still there'll be minus 50% plus or minus. Whereas actually once you're talking about VC and bottom-up stock selection, you know, let's say the FTSE and the S&P can fall 50%, but you can invest it in a company tomorrow and they can be 100x or 1,000x times what they were worth um, today. So yes, maybe in a, a difficult market, being a VC is one of the better things to be. So before we wrap up the show uh, and hear a little bit more about Runa, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there, my brand partners of the podcast, Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The listedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So we haven't mentioned Runa very much, Michael, but uh, everyone knows that uh, VC business is really, 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 very simple. You have a few funds and, and you try and sell them to people, but uh, less of a, uh, an overview. What is it you'd like to tell all the listeners out there who are spread all over the world about who Runa are, uh, what they're selling, what they plan to do? And in particular, you're a great firm today, but what you need to be to be even bigger and better tomorrow. Sounds good. Thank you. Yeah, so Runa Capital, we are an early stage VC fund. You know, I say Series A-ish because no one knows what what the letters mean anymore, but seed Series A, maybe post Series A. Early stage investors, we do a lot of fintech, a lot of fintech infrastructure, B2B SaaS businesses, and some deep tech companies, which most recently has been a lot of quantum computing, though. I'm definitely not the person on our team uh, qualified to make those those investment decisions. Historically, you know, we've mostly invested in the US and Europe, about a kind of 50-50 split. We're starting to do more in Asia, Latin Africa as well. So, you know, very much global in focus. I spend almost all of my time in fintech and, and B2B SaaS plus fintech businesses. And, you know, you asked the great question of what do we need to be successful? Well, we need the best fintech, B2B SaaS plus fintech founders. So if there are any founders out there, please reach out to us on, uh, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, our website. And we'd love to meet you, figure out what you're building. If you're building kind of an infrastructure level product, changing an industry, changing the way financial services work locally or globally, 
that's you know what we're always looking for. So would love to speak to to any founders that are building the, the next great businesses. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. That it's been a fascinating conversation, and with something as vast as the history of fintech in the United States. Really, it's something like the bio tapestry. You know, you need loads and loads of sort of pixels and loads and loads of threads to actually paint the whole picture. But it, I think that we've you know picked out one or two or three very interesting themes within it to see what the uh, big picture is. And as you say, it's challenging times now. I'm glad I'm not a, a fund manager, but if I was a fund manager, then I probably might as well be a, a VC like you because you can still invest in uh, stocks which massively outperform uh, all the other markets, although that can be more challenging to find them. So thank you very much for that, Michael, on my behalf and also listeners. uh, And I wish you and Runa Capital every success in the future. Thank you. It was uh, great chatting today. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash Mike Balliman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye City goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance.